Hello. This is episode 108 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast, coming to you from deep within capitalist society. I'm Andrew Kleiman. This episode's main segment is on an article titled I'm Ho, I-M-H-O, I'm Ho Tail Ends Hamas, Abandons Marxist Humanist Philosophy. I'm Ho is an abbreviation of the so-called International Marxist Humanist Organization. The article was written by Seth Weiss and published on December 17 in With Sober Senses, Marxist Humanist Initiative's online publication. Unfortunately, Seth wasn't able to come on the show to talk about his article, but we think it's important enough that it should be discussed anyway, so that you can hear from Seth himself, not just my take on what he wrote. I'm going to read his article. It's a short article. And after that, I'll discuss Seth's charge that Imho is abandoning Marxist humanist philosophy, not just a political position, and how they're abandoning Marxist humanist philosophy and why they're abandoning it. I'll also say a few things about Marxist humanism's longtime support of the right of all peoples to national self-determination, including in the Middle East. I'll talk about the relation between campism generally and the particular claim that Israel is a so-called settler colonial state. And I'll end with a few words in support of Seth's argument that it's imperative to condemn Hamas. But before all of that, in this episode's current events segment, I'll talk about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on Friday, January 5, to hear a challenge to Idaho's ban on abortions. That actually sounds good, but SCOTUS, at the same time, temporarily reinstated the Idaho law. And that means that SCOTUS has decided to endanger the lives of pregnant emergency room patients in Idaho for at least another five months. Please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, the website of Marxist Humanist Initiative, to listen to past episodes of this podcast series, to learn more about the issues discussed in them, uh, to post comments, and to provide Radio Free Humanity with much-needed donations. This podcast series is sponsored and hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, but the views expressed by hosts and guests are our own. They don't necessarily reflect the views or positions of MHI. Next up, my discussion of SCOTUS and the Idaho abortion ban. Today, which is Sunday, January 7, 2024, I want to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court decision two days ago to hear the Biden administration's challenge to one part of Idaho's abortion ban and the Supreme Court's decision to reinstate that part of the ban in the meantime, before it hears the case. What's at issue here is pregnant women who go to a hospital's emergency room. The emergency room doctor concludes that a pregnant woman needs an immediate abortion to stabilize her condition. If she doesn't get the abortion, she may be facing serious, even irreversible harm, such as severe sepsis that requires limb amputation or uncontrollable uterine hemorrhage that requires a hysterectomy, kidney failure requiring dialysis for the rest of her life, or brain injury from insufficient oxygen, all of those kinds of things. Now, the Idaho law says it's illegal to perform the abortion. 
The Idaho law also supposedly includes an exception to the blanket ban on abortion in cases where abortion is needed to prevent the woman's death. But in the cases that I'm talking about, it's supposedly not a matter of death, not yet at least, just serious and maybe irreversible harm. The reason I say it's supposedly not a matter of death is that the doctor might think, well, the abortion is probably necessary to keep the woman from dying, but that it's going to be hard to prove this to the satisfaction of an Idaho death panel or whatever made up of right-wing anti-woman fanatics. And if they can't convince the powers that be that the abortion was necessary, they face jail time, fines, losing their medical license, even lawsuits from members of the woman's immediate family or extended family. So doctors are liable to think twice about performing the abortion, even when the woman's life is immediately in danger. So in response to this law, the Biden administration intervened uh, with one of the few tools that the federal government has at its disposal and said, if the hospital in question gets federal money from Medicare, it has to adhere to federal law. And federal law says that the abortion needs to be performed to protect the woman's health. The powers that be in Idaho didn't accept that. They claim that the federal law doesn't prevent them from prioritizing the existence of the fetus over the woman's health and well-being. And now the Supreme Court has stepped in, siding with Idaho, at least until the Supreme Court hears the case in April and makes its decision in June. Okay, now Idaho's a small state. It's got a population of less than 2 million. Uh, unless you want to count fetuses and corporations as people. But the population of Texas is 15 times as great. And last Tuesday, just a few days before the Supreme Court said it would take the Idaho case, on Tuesday, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal court, ruled in favor of Texas against the Biden administration in a case that's basically the same as the Idaho case. The first thing that struck me about all this is just the sheer cruelty of the Idaho and Texas laws and the cruelty of the right-wing SCOTUS supermajority. The second thing that struck me is that for Trump and Trumpites, the cruelty is the point. Uh, as Adam Serwer put it in a now famous essay and, and a book with the same name, he wrote, quote, Trump's only real authentic pleasure is in cruelty. It is that cruelty and the delight it brings them that binds his most ardent supporters to him in shared scorn for those they hate and fear. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel proud. It makes them feel happy. It makes them feel united. And as long as he makes them feel that way, they will let him get away with anything. I was reading Jessica Valenti's uh, Substack blog, uh, which is called Abortion Every Day. On Wednesday, she had a post titled, Of Course They Want Us Dead. And she wrote that to Republican lawmakers and the anti-abortion movement, the most noble thing a pregnant woman can do is die so that a fetus can live. If we were good mothers, we'd give up anything for our fetus, including our lives. That's from Jessica Valenti. I'm not sure about that. You know, I'm not sure how prevalent that attitude is, although it exists, but I'm not sure how prevalent it is. But I think that a somewhat less extreme point that Valenti stressed in the same post is quite right. 
laws like those in Idaho and Texas aren't the results of lawmakers' ignorance or stupidity or inability to write laws properly or inability to suss out what the consequences of their laws are going to be. That's what a lot of pundits were saying back when these laws were first adopted. But if that were really the case, these laws would have been revised by now. And certainly we wouldn't have states doubling down, fighting the federal government for their state's right to endanger women's lives for the sake of fetuses. And we wouldn't have courts ruling in favor of the cruelty. But that's what we've got. In the Fifth Circuit decision regarding the Texas law, the court ruled that federal law, quote, does not provide an unqualified right for the pregnant mother to abort her child, close quote. Not an unqualified right, even in an emergency when the woman's life and well-being are at risk. As Valenti put it, what no unqualified right means in this situation is, how dare we expect to live? So whether or not these monsters literally want women dead, their lack of concern for women's well-being in life is intentional and it's thought through. Their lack of concern is the point. The third thing that struck me about this is the question, what is the Supreme Court's strategy here and why? And the other courts. Now, when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade 19 months ago, we had heard assurances from the anti-abortion forces for decades that, of course, there would be exceptions to protect the life of the woman. And it was possible, you know, 19 months ago to believe that those protections would be a real thing, not a farce. Now it's clear protections are not real. Trump apparently still thinks that he can hoodwink enough voters about these so-called exceptions in the case of the life of the woman that people aren't going to hold him accountable for ending the right to abortion. But the truth is coming out. P people are learning what's going on. So what that means is that the Fifth Circuit Court and very likely the Supreme Court are doubling down, reiterating their opposition to abortion rights in an environment in which the implications of that are a lot clearer than they were 19 months ago to a lot of people. Also, of course, when they overturned Roe, it wasn't clear how voters would react. Now it's clear. In state after state, including red states, including swing states, voters have, without exception, supported abortion rights. They've done that directly in referendum questions, and they've done it indirectly by voting for candidates who support abortion rights, like Justice Janet Protasiewicz on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. She won very, very big in what is a swing state, and she is now like the swing vote against the Republican extreme gerrymandering of that state. So the Republican courts like the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court, they're doubling down against abortion rights, even though it's obvious that this is going to hurt Republicans electorally probably more than anything else is going to hurt them. So the question is, why are they doubling down? They're Republican, and it's not in the Republican self-interest to double down in a situation like this, it seems to me. Certainly, the Republican politicians have become all mealy-mouthed on abortion when they can't duck the issue entirely, which is what they prefer to do. Okay, They're not doubling down. They're trying to run away, but not these courts. 
Why not? What's going on? Is it a matter of ideological dogma or theocratic dogma? Is it an expression of the insufferable arrogance of these judges? Or do they know something that we don't know about how the 2024 election and its aftermath will be fashioned, rigged, whatever you might call it, to ensure that Trump retakes power despite what the voters say? These are just questions at this point. I don't know. This is Anne Jacquard from Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI. MHI aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. Today, Amidst many wars, climate crises, economic, social, and political crises, is a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we're faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism, extinguishing our right even to carry on such discussions. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism and not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organizations and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website and podcast to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as to espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as a way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Our collective is working to create an organization so formally rooted in its philosophy that it will not succumb to diversions that may arise from personal agendas and that will be capable of developing and concretizing the philosophy over the long haul, regardless of who its members may be. It is no simple matter to create a democratic organization that is at the same time 
effective and able to resist efforts to divert it from its goals. We are aware that Marx never achieved an organization based on his philosophy and that Donayevskaya's organization disintegrated following her death. But we have made progress in this matter with our principles and bylaws and by recognizing that Marxist humanism cannot be carried on by chance or by individuals alone. An organization is needed in order to test and prove ideas. We invite all of you to join us in this discussion and our initiative. You're listening to uh, the main segment of episode 108 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast, uh, coming to you from deep within capitalist society. Uh, I'm Andrew Kleiman. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, January 4, 2024. Uh, it's our first um, episode of the new year, so happy new year to everybody. Uh, today I'll be discussing a recent article in With Sober Senses, the Marxist Humanist Initiative publication. Uh, it was written by Seth Weiss, uh, and its short title is IMHO, I-M-H-O, IMHO Tail Ends Hamas, abandons Marxist humanist philosophy. Unfortunately, Seth is not able to be here uh, today on the podcast to discuss his article, uh, but we thought it was so important that I should go ahead and discuss it anyway. Um, I want Seth to be able to speak for himself, even though he's not here. Uh, so I'm going to read his article, and after I read it, I'll come back with my own comments on the article and some related thoughts. Uh, the article isn't long. It'll take maybe 12 minutes or so to read it. Uh, but before I get to Seth's article, let me say a bit about him. Uh, Seth Weiss uh, is a supporter of Marxist Humanist Initiative. He's a longtime MHI person. He's been with the organization uh, since it was founded about 15 years ago. Uh, several other articles by him have been published over the years and with sober senses, um, but we don't hear from him as often as I'd like. Uh, so it was a pleasant surprise when I learned that he had submitted uh, this latest article to with sober senses. Uh, also, it was a surprise to me, not a pleasant one, though, uh, to learn from Seth's article that Kevin Anderson and his so-called international Marxist humanist organization are tail-ending Hamas. Uh, I don't generally read what they write or pay attention to them. I've got other more important things to do. So I wasn't aware of their statement on the Hamas-Israel war. And if I recall correctly, uh, Seth also doesn't pay much attention to them either, uh, but he came across their statement many weeks after they put it out, uh, and he sat down and wrote a response and submitted it to With Sober Senses. Uh, and that's why their statement came out on October 15, and Seth's response was published two months later, December 17. Okay, I'm going to read his uh, article. Again, the short title is Aimho, Tail Ends Hamas, Abandons Marxist Humanist Philosophy, published December 17, 2023, and with sober senses by Seth Weiss. The full title is October 7 and the Abandonment of Marxist Humanist Philosophy, a reply to the International Marxist Humanist Organization's statement on the Israel-Hamas war. 
the complete moral and intellectual bankruptcy of the, quote, anti-imperialist left, close quote, is revealed by its celebration of the October 7 massacre in Israel and embrace of Hamas as an anti-colonial force of resistance. At the same time, a great many on the left do understand that Hamas is a profoundly reactionary force, yet they steer clear of unequivocally condemning the October 7 attack, affirming the right of both Palestinians and Jews to national self-determination and critiquing their campus counterparts. Uh, there are two endnotes associated with this first paragraph. The first reads, uh, see Yuval Idan to my Western leftist friends from your leftist Israeli friend for an incisive critique of, quote, the left's, close quote, response to October 7. Uh, episode 106 of Marxist Humanist Initiatives Radio Free Humanity podcast features an interview with Idan. The second note, campism posits a globe divided between two, quote, camps, close quote, or, quote, blocks, close quote, one purportedly, quote, imperialist, and the other purportedly, quote, anti-imperialist. This roughly translates into a pro-U.S. camp and an anti-U.S. one. In this nursery tale conception of geopolitics, which abstracts from class struggle within individual states, the former, quote, camp generally represents all that is bad in the world and the latter all that is good. Uh, returning to Seth's main text, uh, this dismal calculus may reflect an effort to foster unity on the left, but it also reflects crass opportunism. The recent statement, the Middle East and the world after October 7 and Israel's war on Palestine, approved by the steering committee of the International Marxist Humanist Organization, IMHO, indicates that this grouping, abandoning fundamental philosophic commitments of Marxist humanism, is charting a similar course. Endnote 3. Seth says, my discussion here of the import of Marxist humanist philosophy for making sense of the current conflict and for guiding activity in response to it draws heavily upon an unpublished report on the Israel-Hamas war for Marxist humanist initiatives 2023 annual conference uh, written by Andrew Clark and Andrew Kleiman. I also draw upon the discussion of the Israel-Hamas war in episode 102 of the Radio Free Humanity podcast. The usual caveat applies. Uh, returning to the main text, uh, Seth writes, authored by Kevin Anderson, a veteran of the American left, IMHO's statement is marked by the absence of a clear, unequivocal condemnation of Hamas's merciless October 7 assault. The best Anderson can offer is that, quote, massacring and taking civilians as hostages, close quote, doesn't offer, quote, a positive humanist vision, close quote, to inspire the masses. Anderson's failure to unequivocally condemn the October 7 attack, the most significant pogrom since the Holocaust, is striking in its inhumanity. It also represents implicit support for Hamas, especially because Anderson is completely silent about those on the left who are actively cheerleading for Hamas. Similarly, 
any failure to unequivocally condemn Israel's war on Gaza, now assuming genocidal proportions, represents implicit support for Israel's attack. Marxist humanists have always opposed reactionary forces dressed up in, quote, anti-imperialist, close quote, garb. Indeed, Marxist humanism has an extensive history of critiquing one-sided, reflexive, quote, anti-imperialism, close quote, and those on the left who tail end it. We consistently expose the imperialist aims and actions of the USSR and China that masqueraded as, quote, anti-imperialism. We have also unequivocally opposed Serbian aggression against Bosnia and Kosovo, the Ba'athist regime and political Islamism in Iraq, Assad's regime in Syria, and Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Why do Anderson and I'm home now jettison principle? In connection with the reference to Kosovo, uh, Seth has an endnote, uh, see editorial, support the people's war in Kosovo on page nine uh, of the linked document. Continuing with Seth's main text, uh, he writes, Anderson also uncritically quotes a Palestinian diplomat interviewed in Le Monde, who maintains, quote, yes, some actions committed in the course of military operations are war crimes, but public opinion needs to understand that we are also faced with a legitimate war against an occupying army, close quote. From these remarks, Anderson draws a stunning conclusion, quote, thus, if we can support Ukraine, we should also support Palestine, close quote. There is a lot to unpack here. First, and this should go without saying, support for the freedom aspirations of both Palestinians and Ukrainians does not demand that the left sanction war crimes. And should also go without saying that the Ukrainian resistance has not been involved in any crime against the civilian population, even remotely comparable to Hamas's October 7 attack. Nor in the main is the Ukrainian resistance captive to any similarly reactionary fundamental ideology. Moreover, while Hamas's founding documents call for the destruction of the Jewish state, the Ukrainian resistance does not seek to wipe the Russian state off the map. But most jarring in Anderson's formulation here is his conflation of Hamas with the Palestinian people. He characterizes his support for Hamas as support for Palestine. A cardinal tenet of Marxist humanist thought is the imperative to distinguish between the rulers and the ruled. Raya Dunyevskaya formulated this as the presence of, quote, two worlds, close quote, in every country, that of masses and that of their oppressors. In a word, Hamas is not Palestine, no more than Netanyahu and right-wing Zionists are representative of all Israelis. Support for the freedom struggle of the Palestinian people and opposition to Israel's horrific, horrific bombardment, forced population transfer, and killing of thousands of thousands of civilians in Gaza do not demand that the left lend support or cover in any form to Hamas and similar forces of reaction in the region. On the contrary, active opposition to Hamas must be a watchword for all who truly support freedom for the Palestinian people. 
in connection with the reference uh, to two worlds, uh, Seth has EndNote 5. Uh, for more than a quarter of a century, Donevskaya wrote a regular column entitled Two Worlds in News and Letters, her organization's newspaper. Back to his main text, he writes, uh, Anderson also maintains that, quote, actually achieving national independence, let alone real liberation from colonialism or capitalism, requires a truly mass movement rooted in the working people, not a secretive cadre of dedicated young men substituting themselves for those masses, close quote. This formulation, which criticizes secretiveness and substitutionism, but nothing more, entirely misses the mark as a critique of Hamas. It suggests that Hamas is akin to a Guevara-inspired guerrilla group in 1960s Latin America or something of that kind. Nothing could be further from the truth. Hamas was supported by Netanyahu and the Israeli right as a counterweight to the Palestinian Authority. It rules over Gaza with an iron fist, ruthlessly suppressing opposition of any kind, virulently anti-Semitic, patriarchal, and authoritarian. Its high-ranking officials include billionaires who live abroad, like Ismail Haniyeh, the chairman of Hamas's political bureau, who resides in luxury in Qatar, while the civilian population of Gaza, nearly half of whom are children, is now subject to unimaginable horror. Anderson and Imho, who have long voiced opposition to the murderous theocratic regime in Iran that props up Hamas, know all of this, of course. Also striking in Anderson and Imho's statement is the omission of any discussion of the right of both Jews and Palestinians to national self-determination. This is particularly troubling at a moment when a great many on the left find no contradiction in supporting Palestinian national self-determination without extending the same right to Jews. These leftists positing the existence of an undifferentiated, quote, Zionism, close quote, and championing the narrative of Israel as a, quote, settler colonial, close quote, state, the purported, quote, context, close quote, for understanding the conflict, which curiously ignores the context of the Holocaust, the Farhud, the 1947 Aleppo riots, etc., in the flight of Jews to Israel, have no qualms about chanting, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free, close quote. What makes Anderson and Imho's silence on this issue so astonishing is that the right of nations to self-determination has been a key tenet of Marxist humanism from its inception beginning with Donevskaya's work in the Johnson Forest Tendency on the Right of National Self-Determination uh, for Black Americans. It was also central to her analyses of the conflict in the Middle East. Uh, building upon Lenin's work on the national question, Donevskaya considered the right of every nation to self-determination to be fundamental and inviolable. It is not up to the left to determine whether a particular people constitute a nation. Rather, it is a determination to be made by those people themselves. And in connection with Duniaskaya's analyses of the Middle East conflict, Seth has in note six, 
Uh, Radio Free Humanity episode 35 offers an insightful discussion of the early development of Donetskaya's conception of the right of national self-determination. See also Marxist Humanist Initiatives editorial, Ukraine fights for national self-determination against uh, Russian imperialism. For further treatment of Donetskaya's conception and its contemporary uh, import. Returning to the main text of Seth's article. In a cover letter to his 1875 critique of the Gotha program, Marx stressed that there should be no bargaining over principles, even if the refusal to bargain jeopardizes the effort to unite two organizations. And Donevskaya, developing the organizational conception that Marx articulated in his 1875 critique, posited philosophy as the very ground for organization. Marxist humanist philosophy offers a kind of rudder, absent which we are at risk of chasing after the latest fads and fashions or succumbing to opportunism and mindless organization building. Uh, Anderson and Imho are quite familiar with all of this. So again, why are they abandoning principle? And in connection with the uh, reference to the critique of the Gotha program, uh, Seth's Endnote 7. Marx opposed the Gotha program, which unified the party of his followers with that of Ferdinand Lasalle's uh, into an unprecedentedly large formation uh, on the grounds that it represented a step backward in theoretical development. Marx described the program as, quote, a monstrous attack on the understanding that has spread among the mass of our party, close quote. And then uh, the final paragraph of Seth's article, rather than courting the, quote, anti-imperialist left, genuine Marxist humanists strive to listen for the voices of new liberatory forces coming from below. More than a decade ago now, youth in Gaza put out a statement with some simple but also profound words, quote, fuck Hamas, fuck Israel, fuck USA. Close quote. Will Marxist humanism meet this challenge to help work out a new emancipatory path? And in connection with the statement by the youth in Gaza, endnote eight, uh, Gazan youth issue manifesto to vent their anger with all sides in the conflict, uh, article in The Guardian, January 1, 2011. Okay, so that was Seth Weiss's article. Uh, I'm Ho, Tail Ends Hamas, Abandons Marxist Humanist Philosophy. It was published in With Sober Senses uh, on December 17, 2023. Uh, what I want to do now, as I said, is comment on Seth's article uh, and offer some related thoughts. Uh, the first issue I want to address uh, is whether I'm Ho has, has abandoned Marxist humanist philosophy. Uh, Seth writes that Anderson and the rest of Imho have abandoned, quote, fundamental philosophic commitments of Marxist humanism. Uh, but one might argue that the things that Seth is criticizing are political, not philosophical. Uh, Anderson and Imho's implicit support for Hamas, their failure to affirm the rights of national self-determination uh, of both Palestinians and Jews, their courting of the so-called, quote, anti-imperialist left, uh, and its campism. I think that Seth got it exactly right. And it's true that on the surface, the points he's making are political. 
He's not talking about philosophy as is typically understood. But Marxist humanist philosophy is a philosophy of human freedom. It's about the real world we live in and the transformation of the real world. To be more than a bunch of abstractions, the philosophy has to be concrete. It has to concretize itself. It has to be in continual contact with what's going on in the world and express itself in and through its engagement with the world. It has to make explicit what the implications of Marxist humanist philosophy are here and now. So the political principles that Seth refers to, recognizing the existence of two worlds in each country, upholding the right of national self-determination universally, and so on. Yeah, they're political principles, but they're not only political. They're concretizations of Marxist humanist philosophy for the political realm. Okay, I'm not saying that you can't support the right of national self-determination without being a Marxist humanist. Uh, I'm not saying that you've got to be a Marxist humanist in order to have a correct position on the national self-determination issue or anything like that. Uh, and I'm not saying that if you do support the right of national self-determination, that by itself means that you're a Marxist humanist. No, clearly there are a lot of people who are very good on the issue of national self-determination, but who are not Marxist humanists. There are way too few such people, but there's still a lot of them. My point is rather that for Marxist humanists, our support for the right of national self-determination flows out of our philosophy. It's one of the ways that our philosophy expresses itself in the political realm, becomes concrete instead of being uh, a bunch of abstractions that just sit there like a couch potato. So I think that Seth is quite right to say uh, that he doesn't merely have a political difference with uh, Anderson and Imho, and that what's going on instead is that they are abandoning Marxist humanist philosophy. But just how are they abandoning it? They're not abandoning it by saying we're no longer Marxist humanists. They're not abandoning it by refraining from talking about Marxist humanist philosophy. They're abandoning it by turning the philosophy into a bunch of abstractions that would seem to have no implications for real-world politics. In other words, they're turning politics into a private enclave that's supposedly separate from Marxist humanist philosophy. Okay. It's one basis for philosophic science, another basis for real life. Uh, and as Marx said, that is a priori a lie. I'm not making some abstruse point. It's not a hard point. If your philosophy is, quote, Marxist humanist, close quote, but you privilege the opposition between two camps of capitalist countries rather than the antagonism between the rulers and the ruled within each country, if you fail to uphold all people's right to national self-determination, if you cannot even unflinchingly condemn what Seth rightly calls a pogrom, Hamas's mass murder and kidnapping of hundreds of innocent Jews, and I'm not mentioning the rapes that the Hamas committed, which weren't known when uh, Anderson and uh, Imho issued their statement. But if all of this is your politics, then your so-called Marxist humanist philosophy is just a bunch of meaningless abstractions. It floats in the air, but it isn't there on the ground 
where the rubber meets the road. Now, frankly, this practice of turning Marxist humanism into a bunch of abstractions is not an isolated case. It's not something new. IMHO has been doing this for a long time. I call it the IMHO MO. Uh, I also call it the transformation of Marxist humanism into mawkish hudism. It has a function. It serves the needs of what calls itself the left, especially the left-first types who are concerned above all to, quote, build the left, close quote, in other words, concerned to enhance their own power and influence. And especially also, it serves the needs of the people for whom Marxist humanism is a threat, Stalinists, Maoists, tankies, campists, and so on. They're typically left-first types as well, of course. The very existence of Marxist humanism as a live alternative to what they call Marxism and socialism threatens their claims to be the spokespeople for Marxism and socialism and their hegemony within the left. So one might think that what these people would do would be to try to crush Marxist humanism or to ignore it. And that happens often enough. They do try to crush it. They do try to ignore it. But when you're concerned with protecting your hegemony within the left and building your power and influence, that's not good enough. It's not good enough because time and again, Marx's humanism comes back to haunt them as a powerful pole of attraction that's opposite to theirs. In particular, young people are always coming into the movement because they've discovered Marx's critique of alienated labor, his vision of a new human society, and so forth. That's not what, quote, the left, close quote, has to offer, but it certainly does not want to lose these potential recruits, much less does it want to have them choose genuine Marxist humanism uh, rather than what they're putting forward. So what they need is some correct handling of contradictions among the people. They need to make it seem that the contradiction between their ideologies and practices and Marx's humanism is a so-called non-antagonistic contradiction. Uh, since their goal is to build the left, their power and their influence, they need to show that they have a big tent and that you can be a Marxist humanist within that tent. If your Marxist humanism doesn't rock the foundations of their tent. So what they need is supposed Marxist humanists who will stand up at a podium and drown us with flowery rhetoric about a vision of a new human society and overcoming alienation, while making it clear that this is just a Sunday sermon, so to speak. When it comes to practical politics, those people who stand up with flowery language don't condemn the powers that be on the left, and they certainly don't challenge their power. They subordinate themselves to the powers that be, and they indicate by example that that is the proper role for young people and others who are attracted to Marx's humanism. Uh, and that's what I mean by the I'm ho MO. Uh, and by the transformation of Marxist humanism into mawkish hudism. I've got long personal experience to, to draw on when I say that this is how the left operates. Again and again, people would ask me, why don't you talk about humanism? You should talk about what Ryodiniovskaya has to offer us. Why don't you talk about philosophy, what a dialectical perspective can contribute to Marxism, and so on. 
I learned two things from all of this. One, uh, whenever I got advice about what I should do and say, it was always advice in their interest, not mine. Uh, and two, it was a coded way of telling me not to talk about the things that I have been talking about. Well, I didn't go down the road they wanted me to go down. It's the essence of anti-dialectics. Uh, as Ryodunivskaya put it, the dialectic of absolute method does not allow opposites to peacefully coexist, or to use Hegel's phrase, to come before consciousness without reciprocal contact. Uh, on the contrary, it engages all in battle. But obviously, there are other people who are willing to go down the road of peaceful coexistence. Uh, what they get from the left by doing so are some financial benefits, assistance with academic careers, publication and speaking opportunities and such, and appreciation of their contributions instead of constant hostility. And all they have to do in return is cordon off philosophy from the totality of Marxist humanism, turning it into a meaningless abstraction. Uh, Anderson and Imho's celebration of Hamas's terror against Israeli civilians, that's a particularly extreme example of this cordoning off of philosophy, um, but it's not unique. It's not unprecedented with them. Okay, what I want to do now is say a few things about this issue of national self-determination. Uh, Seth points out in his article that the Anderson Imho statement, quote, steers clear of affirming the right of both Palestinians and Jews to national self-determination, close quote. And he says that by steering clear of this, Anderson and Imho are breaking with decades of development of Marxist humanism, quote, Building on Lenin's work on the national question, Donetskaya considered the right of every nation to self-determination to be fundamental and inviolable, close quote. And he says this principle, quote, was also central to her analysis of the conflict in the Middle East, close quote. Uh, here again, I think Seth hit the nail on the head. Uh, there's a lot more that he might have said about this, uh, but of course, he didn't have the space to do so in this particular article, which wasn't about the principle of national self-determination as such. Um, I also don't have time here to exhaustively document what uh, Marxist humanism has developed. I'll just add a few things. All three of Dunyevskaya's major books uh, one was written in the late 1950s, one in the early 1970s, one in the early 1980s. All of them contain substantial discussion of national self-determination, and they consistently affirm all oppressed people's right to national self-determination. So does uh, American Civilization on Trial, a shorter work by Dunyevskaya written in 1963. Uh, that's on the Black freedom struggle in the U.S., Dunyevskaya regarded these four works as foundational to her Marxist humanism. Uh, Marxist Humanist Initiative continues to regard them as foundational as well. So Anderson and Imho are breaking with a position that not only goes a long way back, but a position that is recognized to be among the foundations of Marxist humanism. Now, with respect to the conflict in the Middle East, I'm just going to read a couple of short passages from things that Dunyevskaya wrote to reinforce Seth's point that the principle of national self-determination was central to Dunyevskaya's own analyses of the Middle East conflict. Uh, the first thing I'm going to read is a portion of a letter she wrote on June 8, 1967. 
Uh, that was in the middle of the so-called Six-Day War between Israel and neighboring Arab countries, uh, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. Uh, she titled the letter, The Arab-Israeli Collision, the World Powers, and the Struggle for the Minds of Men. And in it, she wrote, Israel has as much right to exist as any other country. Its right to exist is the only issue on which Marxist humanists express themselves positively. On issues other than that of self-determination, it goes without saying, Marxist humanists take no sides in disputes between nations, nor compromise their revolutionary position for a totally new society based on human, not class, foundations. And here's well, just one more quote from a piece that Doniskaya wrote on February 1969, after the Iraqi government hanged 14 Iraqis, mostly Jews, for allegedly serving as spies for Israel. Uh, the piece that uh, Doniskaya wrote is titled Anti-Semitism, Anti-Revolution, Anti-Philosophy, U.S. and Russia Enter Middle East Cockpit. And in it, she said the following, of course, imperialism, whether Western or Zionist, or for that matter, communist of either the Russian or Chinese variety, has to be fought and destroyed. But how does that excuse the left from all varieties of Trotskyism to the most, quote, non-ideological, close quote, would-be revolutionary for designating all the Arab lands, including even the feudal monarchies, as, quote, representing the progressive forces, close quote. What accounts for the designation of Israel from its birth to its most persistent anti-Zionist manifestation as representing, quote, Western imperialism? She continued, of course, internationalism must replace narrow nationalisms. But how does that get to equal, quote, the annihilation of Israel, close quote? Shouldn't self-determination guarantee Israel's right to exist, even as it holds for all sovereign nations? Marxist humanists refuse not only, quote, to take sides, close quote, in big power deals, but categorically refuse to violate proletarian internationalism and the class struggle within each existing power on the dictates of the Stalinist, Maoist, Castroite, two-camps theory of the world. There has to be an independent way out. There is. So Dunyevskaya was arguing that campism, what she called the Stalinist, Maoist, Castroite, two-camps theory of the world, is a violation of proletarian internationalism uh, and the class struggle within each existing power. Uh, and she suggested that the campus theory is what's behind the claim that Israel has always uh, represented Western imperialism. In other words, it's always been a proxy for Western imperialism. Uh, and that even Israelis who consider themselves anti-Zionist but don't power at the campus line are serving the interests of Western imperialism. Now, if one accepts the campus comic book caricature of the world, it makes perfect sense. But when one takes off one's campus blinders, it becomes clear that what we've got here is a melange. A few actual truths mixed together with a lot of half-truths uh, and untruths. In connection with this, I want to clarify an important point that Seth made in his article. 
Uh, he wrote that, quote, Anderson and Imhoff's omission of any discussion of the right of both Jews and Palestinians to national self-determination is particularly troubling at a moment when a great many on the left, close quote, support the right of national self-determination when it comes to Palestinians, but not when it comes to Jews. Seth then says that, quote, these leftists posit the existence of an undifferentiated, quote, Zionism, close quote, and champion the narrative of Israel as a, quote, settler colonial, close quote, state. Okay, what I want to do is clarify the connection between these two points. What do the narrative of Israel as a supposed settler colonial state and referring to Zionism without making needed distinctions, what do they have to do with the refusal to recognize Jews' right to national self-determination? Seth didn't have a lot of space to elaborate on this much, uh, but it seems to me that one connection is that the settler colonial state narrative and campism generally function here to justify the refusal to recognize the Jewish people's right to national self-determination. If everything is really reducible to the global struggle between two camps, then the establishment of a Jewish state wasn't really about the right of Jews to national self-determination. It was simply and only a settler colonial project. Western imperialism colonized Palestine by having Jews immigrate and settle there. Okay, so campists and the people who tail end campism say, let's talk about what is always really been an issue here, Western imperialism and the struggle against Western imperialism. And we shouldn't raise the issue of national self-determination in any case, not when national self-determination diverts from the main struggle in the world, the struggle against Western imperialism. Another connection, I think, is that the use of the term Zionism as an undifferentiated label makes all of Jewish immigration to Israel seem to be part and parcel of this supposed Western imperialist settler colonial project. Why did Jews immigrate to Palestine and then Israel? The campest answer is Zionism. Jewish immigration and settlement was the Zionist project. That was a Western imperialist project uh, as infused with Zionist ideology. End of story. Or more correctly, it's the end of the story that the campus tell. Uh, but as Seth notes, it leaves out a lot of actual history. It, quote, curiously ignores the Holocaust, the Farhud, which uh, happened in I Iraq, uh, the 1947 Aleppo riots, etc., close quote, as causes of the, quote, flight of Jews to Israel, close quote. Yuval Idan, in a recent Medium post that Gabriel Donnelly and I discussed with her in episode uh, 106 of Radio Free Humanity, uh, put it well. Uh, addressing Western leftists, she wrote the following. Maybe we just need to go back to where we came from? To truly decolonize all of Palestine? Should we go back to Poland, to Iraq, Germany, Russia, Yemen? Or would you like to host us at your place? The Zionist project is not something I ever celebrated, but you need to understand that unlike many of your colonial ancestors, we did not come to Palestine out of some imperial dream. We didn't come to conquer or even to find a better life. We came as refugees, as survivors of pogroms and the Fahud and forced 
displacement, and yes, the Holocaust. Okay, of course, there were some Jews who did immigrate to Palestine and then Israel for Zionist reasons. That, of course, doesn't mean that they did so to further Western imperialism. But what Yuval said and what Seth said is right if we're talking about the large majority of Jewish immigrants. They came as refugees uh, fleeing persecution, um, discrimination and such. I just want to make one more point on the issue of the right of national self-determination. Anderson and Imho haven't simply broken with Marxist humanism's longstanding affirmation of the right of all oppressed peoples to national self-determination. Um, as Andrew Clard, who's organizational secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, as she pointed out to me, they've broken with it in a less than principled and less than honest way. Uh, it would be one thing to say such and such was the view that Dunyevskaya always put forward. Uh, it's there throughout the literature that we promote. It was our position as well for a long time. Uh, but we've rethought the matter, and for the following reasons, we repudiate our earlier views. That would be the principled Marxist way to announce change in one's views. You make clear what the historical record is, and you try to justify the change in your views. And above all, you acknowledge that it is a change in your views, a break with what you earlier stood for. But there's none of that in Anderson and Imo's statement. No reference to the historical record. Um, no mention of a previous affirmation of the right of national self-determination, no acknowledgement of a break, no acknowledgement that the literature one continues to promote puts forward a view that's at odds with your current one. In fact, no mention of the right of national self-determination at all, nada. Finally, I want to turn to the issue of condemnation of Hamas's mass murder and abduction of hundreds of uh, Israeli civilians. Uh, Seth uh, strongly criticizes Anderson and Imho for refusing to condemn these things and for refusing to condemn Hamas itself. Seth says that we should, of course, oppose Israel's actions in Gaza, but that doesn't mean that we should, quote, lend support or cover, close quote, to Hamas. He writes, quote, on the contrary, Active opposition to Hamas must be a watchword for all who truly support freedom for the Palestinian people. Close quote. Now, this has become an extremely controversial issue in some parts of the left. Lots of people and groups have refused to condemn Hamas. They take offense at and mock the question, do you condemn Hamas? Uh, they claim it's a Zionist diversionary tactic is used to distract from Israel's invasion and bombing of Gaza and used to weaken support for Palestine. So which is it? Is it imperative to condemn Hamas, as Seth argues, uh, or is the demand to condemn Hamas a sleazy trick? Uh, here again, I think Seth gets it quite right. Hamas's massacre and kidnapping of hundreds of innocent civilians and the rapes that looked very bad. Uh, 
It did the Palestinian cause a great disservice, except for a relatively small group of campists and fellow travelers who celebrated this pogrom. It shocked and horrified people the world over, including those of us who support Palestinians' right of national self-determination. So, what the campists and fellow travelers and other supporters of Hamas have done is to try to shore up support for Hamas, to shield it from being condemned widely within the left. How do they do this? The way they do it is to conflate Hamas with the Palestinian people. Seth quite rightly calls out Anderson and Imho for doing this. Um, he notes that Anderson characterizes his support for Hamas as, quote, support for Palestine, close quote. By equating Hamas and Palestinians, the supporters of Hamas make themselves seem to simply be pro-Palestinian. They hide behind the much larger group of people who support Palestinians' national and human rights for humanitarian and similar reasons rather than for campist reasons or Islamicist anti-Semitic reasons. The supporters of Hamas do not want people who say what Seth says, oppose Israel's actions in Gaza and oppose Hamas. That is, they don't want condemnation of Hamas to be an integral part or any part of support for the Palestinian cause. They want to ensure that the movement in support of Palestinians does not condemn Hamas and does not affirm Jews' right of national self-determination. And they want to make it seem that any condemnation of Hamas and affirmation of Jews' right of national self-determination is somehow equivalent to opposition to the Palestinians, uh, Zionist smokescreen, and whatnot. In my view, the sleazy trick is this equating of Hamas and Palestine. Now, the only way to expose this trick, the only way to get the supporters of Hamas to reveal themselves and their true aims, instead of hiding behind the broader population that's sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, the only way to make all of this come to light is to ask the question, do you condemn Hamas? And to insist that the question be answered. It's a simple question. It could be answered in a straightforward way. A straightforward yes, I condemn it, is perfectly compatible with support for Palestinians' national and human rights and with condemnation of Israel's horrific actions against the Palestinian people in Gaza. These things are only incompatible in a comic bookish two-camp caricature uh, of the world. In a two-sided conflict like the war between Israel and Hamas, to condemn one side only is to implicitly support the other side. We must not become pawns of either side, and we've got to refrain from tail-ending either side. We must uphold both people's right of national self-determination, and we've got to therefore condemn at one and the same time both sides' violation of these rights as well as the sheer cruelty and inhumanity of their actions. This has been episode 108 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast from deep within capitalist society. Thanks for listening. Please visit MHI's website, MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, to listen to other episodes, to learn more about the issues we discuss, to post comments and to donate to this podcast series. 
Uh, goodbye.